You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We'll be reading from Matthew 5, uh, verses 3 to 7. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Maybe just remain standing for one moment before I dismiss Redemption Hill kids. Parents, I want you to know, what the, our kids ages four to nine will be learning this morning. And once again, as we've been doing every time we've had Redemption Hill kids, um, we're, we're asking a question from the New City Catechism, and we're mapping on our confession of faith with the answer. So I'll read the question, and then with me, let's together corporately read the response. So this is what your kids are learning today. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? With me. The Son of God... The second person in the Holy Trinity is the true and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made. When the fullness of time had come, he took upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. You may be seated. Redemption Hill kids, you are dismissed. We got classes for two to four and then five to nine. And then also for kids, if you're staying in, uh, we have totes out there as well, along with sermon notes. And then if you fill out the sermon notes, I got suckers and stickers for you to choose from afterwards. So just come right up. All right, we are in our sermon series, Sermon on the Mount, as you can tell. Sermon on the Mount is located in chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, before I pray and get into the message, I'm going to give you a heads up on what you can expect in the next several weeks. Uh, next week, believe it or not, is Palm Sunday. <laughs> it's just Time is just flying by. After Palm Sunday, we got Easter. So I'm going to spend some time looking at Palm Sunday, looking at that particular historical event from Holy Scripture, and then obviously we will celebrate Easter. Now, I'll send an email out regarding what's going on with the holidays um, this coming week, but I just wanted to verbally tell you what you can expect regarding what we'll be focusing on in our Sunday celebration. So at, then after Easter, the next Sunday after that, Lord willing, we will ordain uh, Rob Lane, and uh, I'll be preaching on eldership or pastor. What elder or pastor, we use those interchangeably here at Redemption Church. What is an elder? What are the qualifications for an elder? Uh, why do we call an elder an elder, not a pastor? Why are they both, you know? Why do we use them synonymously? Um, so I'm going to preach that message, and then Lord willing, we'll ordain Rob Lane as an elder of this church. After that Sunday, we will hit cruise control. We'll hit cruise control, and then we will stick in the Sermon on the Mount. Right now, I got it mapped out to like October. So for perspective of like, how do we go about preaching? We like to, we like to go really slow. And especially with the Sermon on the Mount, as you can tell, like we can take each particular beatitude and, and focus on that. Um, there's a lot there. And I might sprinkle in a, another short sermon series just to kind of break things up between here and October. But that's what you can expect in terms of the preaching diet 
in this church. So today we'll look at Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Uh, The topic of mercy could be its own sermon series, right? Here's a sermon series on mercy. Here's 10 sermons on mercy. We could do that. There's a lot to look at. Uh, The entire Bible is filled with the mercy of God. And you can trace the importance of mercy actually throughout the Gospel of Matthew. That's one of the themes that Matthew just weaves in and out uh, all the way through. So it's an important topic for him. Matthew wants us to understand the mercy of God in connection with his, what we call the covenant of grace. Um, God has made promises, and his mercy plays a significant role in how God fulfills his promises. And of course, as John prayed, and the mercy of God impacts our lives. Like, blessed are the merciful, so blessed are you who are merciful, for you shall receive mercy. And so we'll be kind of looking at that today. What does it mean to be a merciful person? So let me pray, ask for God's help, and then we'll get into this wonderful beatitude that has massive implications on our lives. Help me, Father. We thank you for your word, and right now we come and and submit to your word, knowing that you have spoken and you continue to speak. And Lord, as we look at Matthew 5, verse 7, help us to grasp the depth of your mercy. And as we're going to see today, we need to first focus on Christ and how that impacts our lives and how that causes us to be merciful to others and then to receive mercy. Help me to be clear with my words. Help me to be faithful to what you've already have said. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, as I was preparing, kind of buttoned up a few things for today, I was in my office, and uh, there's office doors. I had it open. Sharice was playing Monopoly with the kids. And um, I found it amusing that as I was thinking about the mercy of God and how we're supposed to be merciful to others, she was absolutely ruthless with them. (laughs) No mercy. That's kind of how we roll when we play games at the Powers House. (laughs) I'm not going to let you win. Um, I was thinking about other areas of life where where you you don't see mercy. And, uh, you know, we live in the country, as many of you know, and uh, occasionally you hear coyotes. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, those coyotes are not going to show mercy when they see prey. They're going right after it. Since Genesis 3, the world has been filled with unmerciful people as well, right? All that's kind of lighthearted, but in a more serious tone, there's been a lot of unmerciful people throughout the world. In Genesis 4, we read that Cain murdered his brother Abel. No compassion, no mercy. A stroll through biblical history uh, reveals many wicked rulers and kings. We could chronicle that real quick, you know. Unmerciful, no compassion. Look at this king, look at that king. Of course, we can look at modern history and see merciless rulers. Stalin, right? All the gulags. Pol Pot, Cambodia. Hitler, right? Killing millions and millions of people. There was no mercy in their rule, only a clutching of power. Of course, we can experience a lack of mercy in everyday life, like the bully at school or like the belligerent co-worker, right? We see that. That's what sin does. The world lacks mercy. 
speaking about this generation, his generation, excuse me, Thomas Watson said, I think 16th century, there was never more need to preach of mercifulness than in this unmerciful times wherein we live. Like he was saying that back then, hundreds of years ago. Like how much has changed? How much? Not much has changed. So what does, what, what does Jesus preach about mercy? And why do we still need to hear and know about mercy? Here's the answer. The world needs Christ. I'm going to start teasing out an answer about why the world needs to know about mercy. Is that the world needs Christ. Imagine the hope we as Christians can show the world as we live out personally the mercy of Christ. God, for all time, has been calling his people to be a merciful people in an unmerciful world. The call of the Christian, the Christian life, is to be merciful, even though the world and culture seem to demand the opposite. Like We've been talking a lot about what it means to live distinctly as Christians. Man, we can, we, can, we can land on this particular beatitude and just soak in it for a while because if you get this one right, that's going to look a lot different than what we see all throughout this world. And you know it from your everyday life. The call of the Christian is to live in this hope that we have from Christ, that he's merciful. The blessed life, the path of human flourishing includes responding to the mercy of God through our acts of mercy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, another great theologian, he has deceased. He did remind me as I was reading his commentary um, on the Sermon on the Mount that life is about being before doing and saying things like that in this sermon series. Another way he says is that you are not to meant to control your Christianity, but your Christianity is meant to control you. In this sermon series, I've been talking about how the Christian life is about your actions following your essence. And I really want you to hear that over and over. Your actions are following your essence. There is no point in talking about the acts of mercy unless the grace and mercy of God has utterly changed your essence. Like you will not grasp, grasp the depths of God's mercy if God hasn't impacted you with his mercy. Think of it like this. How can you know what it means to be merciful unless the mercy of God has come upon you? Again, I like how Thomas Watson frames this. He says, when the sun shines, the ice melts. When the sun of righteousness once shines with beams of grace upon the soul, then it melts in mercy and tenderness. You must first be a new man before a merciful man. You cannot help a member of Christ until you are yourself a member. So you get what he's saying. You need to be impacted by Christ to really understand what it means to be merciful to others. A person might say, don't we see mercy in the world? I would respond and say, you might see shallow acts of mercy, but predominantly we see the opposite. To be merciful in the way our Lord instructs us requires like having a godly ethic, yes, a godly ethic requires the heart change. There's a reason why our Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus that he needed to be born again if he wanted to see the kingdom of God. That's John 3. 
Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is about how to live in God's kingdom. It's one of the primary themes of what Jesus is talking about. This is my kingdom. This is how you live. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be reborn to know what it looks like to exist in God's kingdom. Without the mercy and grace of God, the heart is dead to God because of sin. What is needed for human flourishing and to truly grasp the depths of mercy is for the cold, dead heart to be made alive in Christ. There's no way Nicodemus or anyone else, not you, not me, can know mercy unless there is a realization that sin is an offense against a holy God. And sin deserves judgment. Listen, here is what we never want to hear, but what is true. We never want to hear this, but this is what the truth is. Because of sin, you and I, this is everyone in the room, because of sin, you and I deserve to be found guilty by God and cast into hell. That is actually what you truly deserve. We don't like to talk about it, but it's true. That's what you deserve. That's what Sean Powers deserves because of my sin. This beatitude will make no sense until you understand what you truly deserve and then what you need. Perhaps you can see how this beatitude connects with the first beatitude. Christ calls us to be poor in spirit, right? And it is the poor in spirit who know what they truly deserve. If all this seems grim, right? Before even talking about the mercy of Christ. It is. But as I have said over the years, you have to know the bad news before you can know the good news. Right? Good news doesn't make sense unless you understand the bad news. You cannot understand what it means to be merciful in God's kingdom until the mercy of Christ has been revealed to you. We read in Ephesians 2 the impact of God's mercy. I love this verse. Verses 4 and 5 are some of the most precious words in Holy Scripture. As we pivot to the good news, we read, But God, but God, being what? Rich in mercy. Because of the great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so the verses leading up to verse 4 tell us that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Paul tells us that by our nature, before verse 4, by our nature we were actually children of wrath. Like if you don't know Christ, you are a child of wrath. Let that sink and settle. But God, but when the rich mercy of God breaks in, the heart is made alive to Christ. If you are a Christian, the mercy of God keeps you from perdition. The good news has overcome the bad news. And only after the good news of the gospel has broken in your life will Matthew 5, 7 make any sense. So quickly, we're going to application, 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 but you got to get the foundation right. We really got to understand the, the gospel foundation here of Matthew 5, 7 and the impact of mercy. Now, as we talk about mercy, it is helpful to see that this is the first beatitude that moves horizontally. Uh, the previous beatitudes focused on your vertical relationship with God. Uh, the four previous beatitudes certainly affect how you treat others, but the fifth beatitude explicitly connects how you interact with others, how you treat other people. 
the horizontal application of this beatitude is, is numerous. God has been merciful with you, so you are compelled by the Holy Spirit to extend mercy to others. Your nature has changed. You were a child of wrath, Christian. You were a child of wrath. But now, you are a child of God. A child of God lives distinctly in this broken world. Every day, you wake up with a thousand opportunities, more than a thousand opportunities to extend mercy and compassion to the people around you because of what God has done for you. Godly living is to take what God has extended to you and extend that to other people. One note about how to interpret this beatitude. Um, resist the temptation to make this beatitude a conditional clause. I think that's where the mind goes right away. Uh, we will run to this dynamic when we look at the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6. Uh, a conditional clause is like saying, if you do this, then you will get this. Right? If you do this, then you will get this. Um, if I do extend mercy, then I will receive mercy. Now, on the one hand, how you live can dictate how you, peop, you know, how you live matters, right? Uh, we read, you reap what you sow, Galatians 6-7. But on the other hand, I do not think Jesus is talking about like the Eastern spiritual principles of karma. It's not what's going on here. The moment you make this beatitude a conditional clause, you actually begin to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian, God does not take back the mercy he has extended to you. He doesn't take it back. These beatitudes are not about the conditional clauses for life. They're about getting to the heart, get to your heart, so that you can flourish as a Christian in God's kingdom. As you can flourish as a disciple of Jesus Christ in God's kingdom. Therefore, we must approach the words of our Lord in the reality that God's people have already been washed and soaked and covered by the mercy that comes from Christ. That's how we need to understand this beatitude. So here's how I want to continue to approach this verse. I want to answer the question, like, what is mercy? Let's just get that out of the way. The term has specific meaning and a tremendous amount of application. Then I want to show what it looks like to be merciful. Like, that's important, too. That's really the heart of what Christ is saying. Christ has called you, Christian, to apply mercy. Let's see how. And last, we'll focus on the importance of receiving mercy. The fact of the matter is this. You and I are sinners. And we need to live in the reality of Christ's mercy every single day. We also need to be people extending and receiving mercy from others. So, first question, what is mercy? We need to distinguish mercy from grace because oftentimes the two terms are confused or interchanged, right? So that'd be the first thing we need to think through. The grace of God is a freely given gift. I just had that narrowed down, brass tacks, a freely given gift. You did not ask for the gift. You did not expect the gift. You do not deserve the gift, but God gives you the gift. In Ephesians 2.8, we read that salvation, it, salvation by faith is a gift from God. It's a gift. You did nothing to earn the faith required to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but God has freely given you the faith. That's grace. Here's my son. He can give you the faith to believe in my son. And grace is wonderful, right? We, talk, we just sang earlier, amazing grace. But mercy is not grace. 
I mean, as I've already indicated, mercy is God withholding the judgment you deserve because of sin. That's mercy. God withholds the judgment that you deserve because of sin. And as we're going to see, it's judgments placed on Christ. When my kids were younger, I had a practice of explaining mercy uh, to my kids through discipline. Uh, let's say one of my kiddos um, did something that was wrong that ne- necessitated discipline, con- consequences, right? Well, I would, you know, something happens, like, all right, got to deal with this. Pull the, my child aside, talk it through. Like, hey, what's going on here? Why would you hit your sibling or whatever? That's sin. <clears throat> and um, oftentimes, they'd be like, all right, there's going to be discipline. Occasionally, though, I wouldn't. I get to their heart. They're like, all right, go play. And I, I remember a few times kids being like, why? What are you doing, Dad? I'm like, I'm trying to teach you mercy. You do deserve consequences for your actions. But right now, I feel compelled just to say, hey, just don't do it again and go. Just trying to explain mercy to them. Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us see the difference between grace and mercy. Grace and mercy are different concepts, but both place a certain aspect, critical aspect in salvation and sanctification. He says, grace is especially associated with men and their sins. Mercy is especially associated with men and their misery. Mercy is about God relieving from you the bad news because of the, through the atoning work of Christ at the cross. Here's what our confession of faith says about the mercy of God and salvation. There is no one who does good and does not sin. Even the best of men may fall into great sins and provocations through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them with the prevalence of temptation. But God has, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling are renewed through repentance to salvation. I know there's a lot there, but you see how mercy is connected to faith in Christ, to salvation. So if you want to know what it means to be merciful to others, you must experience, as I've been saying, the saving mercy of Christ through repentance and faith. Now, let's take a broader look at mercy in the Bible. The uh, semantic range of mercy, the word mercy, is also like pity or compassion. So you see this one Greek word, and you get translated mercy sometimes. Sometimes it can be translated as compassion. Sometimes it's pity. Uh, indeed, God has demonstrated compassion and, and pity to his people, without a doubt. Therefore, God calls his children to extend compassion and pity to others. And I'll talk about compassion at the end here. In the Old Testament, the mercy of God could also mean God's loving kindness. Uh, so in the Old Testament, these words are actually interchangeable, loving kindness, mercy. It kind of depends on context. The mercy of God in the Old Testament is called hesed. For example, Psalm 136 uses the phrase, the mercy of God endures forever, in some translations, 26 times. So in 26 verses in Psalm 136, all mention the mercy of God. Now, if you're looking at your ESV, it's going to say loving kindness. But when God created the world, there was the mercy of God. That's the point that the psalmist is making in Psalm 136. When God led Israel out of Egypt, there was the mercy of God on display. Like the New Testament, like I said, mercy has a range of meanings. Still, a consistent theme throughout all the interpretations is that God does not give you what you deserve. You deserve judgment. But he shows his covenant people what they do not deserve, salvation and redemption. 
God's people did not deserve an exodus from Egypt. Think about that. Going back to the book of Exodus. They didn't deserve that. But God broke in. We don't deserve Jesus. But God broke in with his mercy. This is a really important foundation. I'm beginning with the gospel for a very particular reason. If you don't get the foundation right, everything goes amiss. So all that with the foundation, let's think about now how to apply mercy. What does it mean to be merciful? Well, as I said, connected to mercy are compassion and forgiveness. I'm going to look at these two particular application points of mercy. So let's look at forgiveness and then compassion. When the Son of God died on the cross, the forgiveness of sins was secured for all of God's people. Past sins, present sins, future sins. The Bible tells us that forgiveness happens in two ways. Forgiveness happens through propitiation, big word, and expiation. Now, these might be foreign concepts, but they're really important to understand the power of forgiveness, not only for you, but also as you extend forgiveness to others and receive forgiveness from others. Propitiation is the biblical doctrine that the death of Christ fully satisfied the demands of a righteous God. Every person deserves to be judged, and the question is, how can God's righteous judgment be satisfied? Well, only the perfect Son of God could satisfy God's wrath. We read in 1 John, He, Jesus, is the what? Propitiation for our sins. The wrath of God has been satisfied by Christ. But what about our sin, right? It's good, it's good that the wrath of God is satisfied, but what about our sin? What do we do with that? Well, something needs to be done with our sin. Some say that expiation means to cover sin or cleanse sin. And those are good terms, good ways to think about it. It's kind of like atonement. This is a fine way to think about expiation, but there's more. Expiation is about the removal of sin, the sin that you've done. In Leviticus 16, I love this story in the Old Testament. We read about the sacrificial system. Now, this is foreign to us Americans, but if we transported ourselves back thousands of years, sacrificial systems were very common across all cultures and religions. And we go to Leviticus 16, and we read about the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, two goats were brought forth, right? The first goat was sacrificed. It was killed. A propitiation was made. It was meant to symbolize that the wrath of God was satisfied. But the second goat was brought. It would be brought to the altar, and then it would be set free, and then pushed to the east. That's expiation. We read in Psalm 103, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There's forgiveness. Because of the mercy of God, your sins have been forgiven and set away. Now, in the fifth beatitude, we're called to be merciful to others. While you will never be someone's savior, so don't try to be, you are called to extend mercy, compassion, and pity toward others and to forgive these acts of mercy point to the one Savior, right? Christ in you. Christians are called to be quick to forgive. Consider all the sins you have ever committed against God, and yet God has forgiven you. 
Like, you can just do a catalog real quick. It's not a, it's not a point of shame or condemnation. It's to help you focus on Christ. He's forgiven you. He has forgiven you. Do you think there's something that you can learn about what it means to forgive the people in your life just as God has forgiven you? Again, we're talking about applying in mercy. Forgiving someone who has wronged you might not take the pain away, but forgiveness is peace for the soul. Because here's the deal. You have also sinned against others and others have sinned against you. For a moment, I want to contrast this beatitude with a little bit of what I said earlier about what we see in culture. Contrasting this beatitude with culture will help the church, I think, live distinctly. Here is the question. Do you think we live in a merciful and forgiving culture? Do you think we live in that culture? I don't think so. I see that social media is the new temple where atonement for sins takes place. (laughs) That's what I see. The new priests on social media demand repentance for something a person did 20 years ago as a dumb freshman (laughs) in high school, right? That's what I see. Social media demands, the social media priest, let's call them, demands Christians apologize for saying a man is a man and a woman is a woman, which can't be changed. At the end of the road in the new temple, we don't see forgiveness, but we see condemnation and shame. Now consider the words of our Lord from Matthew 18. In verse 21, we read that Peter approaches Jesus with a question. Peter asks this question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Like, so do I forgive seven times? Like, is that, is that enough, Jesus? We good? Well, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven, but 77 times. <laughs> what do you think Peter's thinking? After these words, our Lord tells a parable about the appropriate and inappropriate response to a forgiven person. You should read it later. But the bottom line is that Jesus does not want you or me to quantify the number of times to forgive another person. And so what he's saying here, 77 times, no, the response of Jesus would have been staggering for Peter. For, for Peter. Forgiving another person has no limits. Because Why? God's forgiveness and extension of mercy to you has no limits. Do you want to be like Jesus? We can go back to the bracelets, WWJD, what would Jesus do? you want to be like Jesus? Then practice acts of forgiveness over and over and over and over. After you have forgiven that person 77 times, make sure you forgive that person a 78th time. I'm constantly amazed to see Christian men and women forgive a person after losing a loved one at the hands of another person. I mean, I'm going to share one story at the very end. But every now and then, we see on the news or read in the paper how a person was murdered, right? And then after the verdict, family and friends are allowed to speak to the murderer. I mean, I get chills just thinking about some of the stories that I've read. And they say, I forgive you. Like, who can do that? Christ in you can do that. Even even those who are not Christians look on with amazement. Like, 
How could you possibly forgive that person for taking your friend or your son or your daughter or your spouse? How is that even possible? Because of Christ. And in in these moments, it's just so clear that they're sharing the gospel to to the murderer. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to extend mercy. Why? Because of Jesus. Do not cheapen the grace of God by withholding forgiveness. Do not cheapen the mercy of God by withholding forgiveness. Now, forgiveness does not mean justice is absent. That's not what I'm saying. After all, the judgment of God was poured upon Jesus. No, there can be severe consequences from sin. A spouse who cheats will incur consequences. Once again, we see Jesus speaking to the heart in Matthew 5-7. Extending forgiveness begins in the heart. Forgiveness can soften the heart of the wrongdoer and provide comfort and peace to the heart of the hurting. How do we apply mercy? Think through forgiveness. Forgiving others when you've been wronged. A second application of mercy is compassion. Compassion does not necessarily include an offense or sin per se. Compassion is looking at another person's lot in life and saying, how can I help? Right? Compassion, working through mercy, expects nothing in return. Nothing in return. The compassion of Christ is all over the pages of the New Testament. Here are two examples. In Matthew 15, we read about Jesus preaching to a crowd and healing the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute. That's Matthew 15, 30. If I said no more, we would say that we see the compassion of Christ on display, right? He is healing the infirmities of the poor. But we also read in Matthew 15 that Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they had nothing to eat. They got no food. And then Jesus famously and miraculously multiplies loaves and fish. Now, you might not be multiplying loaves and fish anytime soon. I mean, if you, if you, if you, if you can, call me. I'd love to see it. But my guess is you're not. But we can have compassion on the poor and the hungry. So does your compassion move you to action? Have you considered getting involved in a soup kitchen? Have you considered in helping and together for good, right? A mercy that we are participating in. Perhaps one of the best stories of compassion is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can read it in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Here's a synopsis of the parable. Jesus says there was a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was mugged by robbers and was left for dead. He's just on his way, mugged, left for dead, not good. The road was well-traveled, and then a priest walked by. Well, what did he do? He's like, I'm just going to go across the road, pretend he's not there, and move on. Story continues. A Levite, another religious dude, walks by. What does he do? Wants to avoid it. Nothing's there, nothing's there. Go across the road and move on. And then a Samaritan walks by. Samaritans were the ethnic outcasts of society. There were many stereotypes and prejudices against Samaritans. But no matter what, the Samaritan helped the man. He healed the wounds and found the man lodging. 
after telling the story, Jesus posed the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then a person answers, the one who showed mercy. The Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, great, now that you know the story, you go and do likewise. Now pause for a moment and consider what is going on. The revered religious people walked right by, but the person on the lowest rung on the social ladder extended compassion. Thursday evening, um, Powers family and the in-laws, we were having dinner at Chick-fil-A in West Des Moines. And uh, sitting near our table was someone who was clearly homeless. Uh, you see, he had, warm, he had warm clothes. He had food. Um, the good people at Chick-fil-A were not kicking him out. I mean, he wasn't a nuisance, but he was homeless. The situation resulted in a conversation between Sharice and myself on the way home. What does it mean to show compassion to a person, right? The person holding the sign on the side of the road, right? We've all seen that. What does it mean to show compassion? When we lived in the Twin Cities, um, I used to have granola bars and bananas in my car because there's a lot more homeless people in the Twin Cities and I was always driving everywhere. And that's what I would give, right? Now, I do, I do not think, in terms of how do we respond to this, I don't think there's one, like, one correct answer. Situations can be nuanced and different. The reasons for poverty is very complicated. But I do believe it is vital for Christians to frame a response with the mercy and compassion of Christ. You can't help every person in need. I get it, right? I get it. But Christians should continuously pursue a heart of compassion. And as the Holy Spirit leads, you put compassion into action. Here's another example of mercy, forgiveness, and compassion. We don't read any of these key words, but we see it on display. Before our Lord died on the cross, we read of this exchange between him and two criminals. One criminal flanked to his left, another one flanked to his right. We read in Holy Scripture, one of the criminals who were hanged, railed against him, like one guy just laying into Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was taking on the weight of sin. And yet before he died, he had compassion and the awareness to extend mercy to one of these criminals. I find, I find the story just amazing. Here he is, the son of God, about to die. And the criminal himself said, I deserve to die. I deserve the punishment that is coming to me. But God, being rich in mercy. Again, you'll never be another person's savior, but you also can be aware and ready to extend compassion even to a criminal who deserves to die. 
I'm going to push on this a little bit more. If Christ is extending mercy and compassion to a person who deserves to die for his crime, the criminal's words, not mine, then how much more should we be compassionate to those around us? Right? I mean, that's truly where it's hardest to extend compassion in the home, at work, with your friends, siblings, right? That's where it's hardest. And yet, we are called to press into that. Most offenses take place with the people you love. The other half of this beatitude is that the merciful will receive mercy. The trajectory I've been attempting to lay out with this beatitude is one, you need to know the good news, you need to know God and his mercy, and then two, when you know God's mercy, you respond to others with acts of mercy. Then three, your acts of mercy continue to result in God showing mercy every single day. Like Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Do you want to know what you experienced when you woke up this morning? The mercy of God. Every breath you take, is because of the mercy of God. Nothing else. In a blink of an eye, God could take it all away from you, just as he did with Job, and he would still be just and good. But as of now, God is not. Why? Because he is merciful. And as Christians, as a church, we want to be thankful for the mercy of God. In addition, because God is at work in us, we want to be a church that is constantly extending mercy to one another. And then sometimes you've got to receive that mercy from other people. If someone extends mercy to you because you actually sinned against someone, receive it and be at peace. Now, I'm going to end with a story about mercy and forgiveness, as I mentioned. I remembered this story from 16 years ago. And I read more uh, about it um, a couple days ago. It was a well-chronicled story. I mean, I'm going to share it here in a moment. I'm sure some of you may remember it as well. You know, all the major news outlets were covering it. And it's interesting that they were covering, covering it in light of the content. I'm going to read directly from a blog that I was reading. The story goes like this. It begins with the murder of five Amish schoolgirls and the critical wounding of five others in a one-room Amish schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, October 2nd, 2006. The girls, the oldest of whom was 13, were murdered by a demented local man named Charles Carl Roberts IV, who brought with him to the schoolhouse a semi-automatic pistol, 600 rounds of ammunition, a shotgun, a stun gun, plastic ties to use as handcuffs, and a board with nails to barricade the school door shut. The teacher managed to slip out of the side door almost immediately and then ran from help. Three policemen arrived within minutes. Ten more police arrived several minutes later. Negotiations were brief. Hearing shots from inside, they stormed the school. Roberts had shot himself in the head, but not before shooting the ten girls. I mean, you can picture that in your head. It's tragic. Like, I want you to be stunned. We all agree, stuff like that should not happen. I'm going to continue in the story. That evening, 
three Amish men went to visit Amy Roberts, Roberts' widow, who was staying with her parents. And I quote, We just talked with him for about 10 minutes to express our sorrow and told them we didn't hold anything against them, said one of the Amish visitors. Several miles away, an Amish man went to see Carl Roberts' father, his father, spending about an hour with him. A spokesman for the Roberts family later said he stood there for about an hour and he held that man, that is Mr. Roberts. He held him in his arms and said, we forgive you. Now, presumably, Mr. Roberts' father did not need forgiveness in any ways that we ordinarily understand the term today, but perhaps that was not as important as the visit and the holding. That's like compassion, right? Continuing on. Acts of forgiveness and grace by the, the Amish continued. The parents of several of the slain children invited members of the Roberts family to attend their daughter's funerals. When Charles Roberts was buried, the murderer, more than a half of the 75 mourners were Amish. Most impressive, perhaps because it required that forgiveness be organized by thought, the Nickel Mines Accountability Committee, which received thousands of dollars in donations from all over the country and the world, decided to delete the name Amish from the committee and direct a significant portion of donations to the Roberts family for support of Roberts' widow and the education of his children. Many Amish continued to contribute to the Roberts Family Fund established at a local savings bank. Brief and very brief, in another report, I read this. In the midst of their grief over this shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. They didn't hold a press conference with attorneys at their side. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. Man, can we be that kind of people? And the account of mercy and forgiveness kind of continues beyond what I've read. We live in an unmerciful world, but I actually still have hope for the world. I have hope for the world because of the mercy of Christ working in and through the church. I have hope for the world because of the mercy of Christ working in and through you. Last sentence. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.